Mark chapter 3, verse 20 through 35 is our text this morning. I'll read and then we'll pray. Verse 20. And then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even, even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. He casts out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but, it, but he is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. But whatever blasphemies they utter, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they went to him and called him. And a crowd was standing around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, and mother. Let's pray. God, I pray this morning that you would open our hearts today. I pray that you would open up those hidden secret places of our hearts where hurt and, and rejection lie. I know that's like a, a very dangerous prayer to pray, God, but I pray that you would deal with those things this morning. I pray that you would heal us, Lord, by your word and by your spirit. Holy Spirit, we need you to help us understand what you want to speak to us. We need your help, Lord, and opening up our eyes to see who Jesus really is. We want to see Jesus today in clarity and in truth, and God, I ask, God, that you would use me today. I submit my mouth and my mind to you. I need your help this morning. This, this text is crazy, and I pray, God, that you would help us. We want Jesus to be exalted. We want to follow you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been studying the book of Mark for the last several months since we've started here, and we've been saying that Mark was the first to put into writing who Jesus really was. So he was the first to write a book about who Jesus really was, and from the opening line of the book of Mark, he lets us, the reader, the people that are reading the book of Mark, know who Jesus is and what the gospel is from the opening line of the book. He opens up the book saying, here's who Jesus is and all of his glory, but here's the catch. No one in the story really knows who he is. We know, as readers, we know who Jesus is, but nobody in the story knows who Jesus is. And here lies the dramatic irony of the book of Mark. You and I, as readers, know the identity of Jesus from the first line. We know who he is and what he's come to do, but none of the characters in the story know. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we know from the very opening line, oh, this book is about the gospel. The gospel is Jesus, and Jesus is the Son of God. So the suspense arises from the tension between the reader's knowledge 
and the ignorance of the actors. Everyone in the book of Mark, almost everyone except for the demons, don't know who Jesus is. Everybody's trying to guess and try to, they have all this raw data. They're like, what do we do with everything he's saying and everything he's doing? And they're trying to gather all of this information and they make claims about who he is. And Mark uses this. We know from the beginning who the real Jesus is and that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the gospel concerns him, but ironically, no one else really knows. And this is the brilliancy of the book of Mark. This is why I love the book of Mark so much. Because, because in this story, the setting and the context of this story is unbelief and unawareness. That's the context of the book of Mark. Nobody really believes, and everybody's unaware of what's going on. Mark will actually use this unbelief and unawareness to present who Jesus really is, which I think is awesome because this is what it means. This book can handle your unbelief. If you're in here this morning and you don't really believe in Jesus, or you kind of think, well, Jesus was this, but I don't really think he's the whole package like the church is trying to put together. I don't think he's all of that. I just think he's this. This book can handle your unbelief. It won't crumble under the weight of your unbelief. It's actually the context and the climate of the book. And it also gives it, throughout the book, dramatic punches, like we'll see today. Because this is what happens in our text today. Jesus takes what people think about him and he uses it to show who he really is. People come to him and start thinking, well, you're this and you're that and you're this, and he uses that to teach them, this is who I really am. So in our story, this is what we'll see. We'll see a trilemma, a parable, a warning, and an invitation. A trilemma, a parable, a warning, and an invitation. That's, how we'll, that's what we'll see in our text this morning. So number one, a trilemma. Not a dilemma, a trilemma. I don't know if you ever had a trilemma before. Maybe your wardrobe closet in the morning, like, no, this is a trilemma. Not a dilemma. I don't know. I have three things that would look awesome today. I don't know. Okay, so a trilemma. So there's three things. This is called the great trilemma. Commentators call this right here the great trilemma of Jesus. Mark employs the sandwich technique, which I happen to be a fan of because I love sandwiches. This is, this, this is called the sandwich technique that Mark uses. This is where one episode is sandwiched as an interpretation between the beginning and the ending of another episode. So an episode starts, and then something is squeezed right in the middle, and the episode continues on. So the scene will change in the middle of the action, leaving the viewer in suspense, while the camera cuts to another scene, and the camera will return to resolve the action it began in the initial scene, thus creating a frame around the middle story. So what's going on here? The scene begins with Jesus' family literally trying to perform a family intervention. They go up to Jesus going, okay, we have to step in here. We need family intervention time for Jesus. So they go and they say he's gone mad, he's lost his mind, let's go get him, he's gone crazy, he's a lunatic. Then the scene is interrupted by some religious leaders from Jerusalem saying that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul. So the scene goes from the, the family to this, the, in, in the middle of a house where these, these leaders are going, well, this guy is possessed. Then it closes by going back to the scene with his family, asking for him to come outside the house. So if this was a movie, you would see Jesus' family, Mary and his brothers, walking up to this house and going, he's lost his mind. He's gone crazy. He's not in the synagogues anymore. He's going up to mountains, calling people to himself, doing all these gr- crazy things. He doesn't have a job. That's what some commentators going, well, he doesn't have a job to commit to family finances. He just out, he's like lost his mind. We have to go grab him. 
He's ruining the family name. He's ruining himself. He's gone crazy. Let's go save him. So they're walking up. Right as they walk to the front door, the, the, the scene switches now to inside the house. And inside the house, there's these scribes from Jerusalem. And they're going, Satan, you, Jesus, you are, you are possessed by Satan. You are a demoniac. You are not crazy. You're possessed. You're the devil. And then Jesus shares a parable. And then it goes back outside again where they actually get to the front of the house, and it's too packed. They can't get in. And so they say, okay, you tell the person in the back, telephone here, go all the way in the front. Everybody tell each other. And until you get to Jesus, tell them your mommy's outside, and she wants to talk to you. <laughs> so that might have been a little bit embarrassing. Like, all of a sudden, Jesus is teaching and preaching, and then, like, tap, tap, hey, your mom's outside. She says, you're in trouble. I don't know. Streetlights are on. You're in trouble. Like, you have to go home now. And so... And so Jesus then now uses that to teach something else about the kingdom of God. Now, in the middle is where we get the interpretation of what's really going on. Jesus actually explains who he is in the middle. This trilemma is centered around the question of who is Jesus. That's, the trilemma is actually centered around that because, look, people around Jesus tried to make sense of what he was claiming and what he was doing. They had all this information. What are they going to do with it? His family gather this information and say, he's gone crazy. He's crazy. We need to, he, he's gone mad. We have to go grab him. He's out of his mind. The religious leaders accuse him of being a liar and that he's not from God but from Satan because Jesus is claiming that he's from God. They're like, no, he's lying. He's not from God. He's from Satan and is himself demon-possessed and evil. But Jesus claims to be the stronger one who has come to liberate humanity. So humanity is left with these three options. This is the great trilemma. These three options. He's a lunatic and is absolutely crazy and disillusioned. He's a liar and is absolutely evil. Or he is the Lord and should be absolutely worshipped. Those are the only three options that the scriptures leave us with. These are the only three options that the eyewitnesses leave us with. The people who were around him. This was the only three options. But we modern urbanites say, wait, wait, wait. There's a, there should be a fourth option. How about the option that he was just a great teacher? Can we have that option? Can we just say Jesus was a great teacher? That he was a great leader of a movement of love and acceptance and peace? I want that Jesus. I don't want, the, I don't have to, I don't want to decide about what you're, you're saying about Jesus. I want you just to believe Jesus as a great teacher. And there's people that do that all over this city, that Jesus is cool with them as a great teacher. He's come to bring love. He's come to bring acceptance. He's come to bring peace. Now, let me say this. He was a great teacher. He was a great leader of self-sacrificial love and of scandalous acceptance and deep peace. But to say that he was simply a teacher of those things, you have to miss the real Jesus. You miss the real Jesus of the book of Mark because Mark doesn't allow us to say that. And to put it bluntly, that option is not available to the real and the historic Jesus. Not the Jesus that the first century Jews knew and listened to and watched. Now, you might be able to say that some 2,000 years later, but the first century Jews, as they saw Jesus and his ministry, they never, ever got that option. They never went, oh, he's just a great teacher. They had to either worship him, or they had to call him crazy, or they had to call him demonic. And the reason why is because of his staggering claims. What Jesus claimed 
his lifestyle and what he claimed were absolutely crazy. His lifestyle was totally meek and humble and other-centered. The way he lived, he cared for the marginal and the poor and the oppressed. So his lifestyle reflected this self-sacrificial love. But his claims were absolutely egocentric. His claims were all about him. They all gathered around him. He was gathering people around him. He was claiming that he was the Christ, the Lord's Messiah, that he was God in flesh, come to deal with our enemy, sin, death, and the devil, that he was ultimate reality, that he was truth, that he was the way. And nobody makes claims like that, and is called a great teacher. Now, let me give you a very extreme example of this. I don't almost want to use this, but I will. An extreme example of this is there was a pastor in this city in the 70s named Jim Jones. And he was a pastor of People's Temple Church on Gary Boulevard. And no one now, especially people in this area, say that he was a great teacher. No one would claim, if you've ever heard of Jim Jones leading over 900 people to mass suicide, no one would ever say he was a great teacher. No one would go, well, hey, Jim Jones, I mean, right? Good teacher. No one says that. No one says that at all. Now, even though when he was here in the city, he preached, he was very socially active in the city, did tons to alleviate poverty and suffering, but no one says that after he's killed, led 900 people to kill themselves. No one says he was a great teacher. That claim is not available to us. The reason why is because of what he claimed he was and his lifestyle. Here's one of his claims. Let me read it to you. This is what he's, he actually said. What you need to believe in is what you can see. If you see me as your friend, I will be your friend. As you see me as your father, I will be your father. For those of you that don't have a father, if you see me as your savior, I will be your savior. If you see me as your God, I will be your God. No one claimed, makes claims like that, and people around him say, good teacher, and I got a good teacher. You have to either accept what, what he says he is, call him crazy, or call him demonic. That's it. The same with Jesus. When Jesus was around, he told people, he preached that my body is bread from God, and you have no part in me unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. You have no part in me. No one says that. People around him, when Jesus said that, were like, okay, that's it. I'm out. That's weird. I'm not going to do that. I'm out of here. He's, that's, I'm out. And they left. No one says claims like that, and you're going, oh, bravo. That was a good lesson. Eat your body. Yep, that was good. That was good. Blood. That was good. Nobody says that. Now, you're going, well, that was symbolic. Well, I know it's symbolic. But still, no one says my life is so important to your life that it's actually bread. And every time you eat bread, I want you to think of me and my body that you're taking in as an act of worship. If I said that to you, you run. That's weird. Or my life is so important that when you drink wine, it's a picture of my blood and that, that I'm pouring out for you. Do it in remembrance of me. Those claims are so staggering that you can't just say, you know what, let's give Jesus the good teacher badge. You can't do that. He was a good teacher, but his claims didn't allow for you to just take his advice. His claims demanded that you completely surrender and follow him or brush him off as demonic or a liar. C.S. Lewis has three chapters in Mere Christianity that really explain this really well. It's really good. I use really a lot in that sentence, but let me read this to you. It's on the screen. 
I am trying here, he says, to prevent anyone from saying that the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him, his claim to be God. That is one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with the patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So what are the great religious leaders from headquarters do, from Jerusalem? They go down and they accuse Jesus of being demon-possessed. So his family say he's crazy. The religious leaders say he's demon-possessed. Look at verse 22. And the scribes who come down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And the prince of demons, he casts out demons. They didn't question that Jesus had power. They didn't say, hey, you don't have any power. They didn't question his power over demons, over sickness, over disease, or even physical deformity. They did not question his power. He had power. That was clearly seen. But what they do with this information and what they do with this reality is what matters. What do they do with this information that he's powerful? What do they do with this information that, he's, that he has power over the demonic? They demonize him. They look at Jesus and say, you are a demon. And they say that the source of power couldn't be God because God doesn't work from the margins. He operates out of Jerusalem. God doesn't heal on the Sabbath. God doesn't touch lepers who are ritually unclean. So he must have had this power over the demonic because he is the prince of demons, Beelzebul, and an undercover agent for, for Satan. He must be some undercover agent for Satan. He cannot be from God. Now listen to this. By doing this, what they do is they shrink Jesus down to a manageable, controllable size. That's what they're doing here. Because they know what to do with a demoniac, they don't know what to do with a man who does what Jesus does and claims to be God. They don't know what to do with that. They don't have a, 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 a mental framework to deal with that. So what do they do? They're like, okay, let's shrink him down. Demon. We know what to do with a demon. We can actually kill him if he's demon-possessed. We can do that. But a man who does what he does and claims what he claims, we don't know what to do with that. So they shrink Jesus down to a manageable size. And I think, to a certain degree, you and I know what to do with a great moral teacher. You and I know what to do when we shrink Jesus down to a manageable, palatable, and controllable size. When we say that he was a great teacher of love and acceptance and peace, you and I can swallow that. This city can swallow that. If, I, if we preach a Jesus that's like, hey, Jesus is all about love, he's just a great teacher, everyone in the city can swallow that. Everyone can go, oh yeah, love. Yeah, let's love. Oh yeah, acceptance. Let's just accept everybody. Oh yeah, let's just, and was he a teacher of those things? Yes, but he wasn't simply a teacher of those things. We cannot be in the same danger as he describes of shrinking Jesus down to a palatable size. Because Jesus here now comes back at them with a parable about who he really is. Look at this. Next is the parable. Verse 23. 
And he called them to him and said to them in parables or in a metaphor, how can Satan cast out Satan? I mean, he's just being honest with them. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. What Jesus is saying is that a general never wins a battle by attacking the front lines of his own men. So Satan's not doing that. Verse 25, and if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So this parable here is a metaphor. This present world, this is what Jesus is saying. This present world is like a house that is dominated by a very, very strong man, an evil man, an evil ruler, a tyrannical king. This house is the strong man's domain. He rules in this house. And in this house, there are unfortunate victims, people whom this evil ruler has taken captive and made prisoners. Jesus is saying, the people in the house are us. The people in this house are you and me. Jesus is saying that this world is in bondage. We're in bondage to sin and to death and to Satan. And this is so profound because this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am stronger. I am more mighty. I am the more powerful one who has come from God, invaded Satan's stronghold, Satan's domain, and bound him. I have come to set the captives free. In other words, Satan's domain is not self-destructing from within. Jesus is saying, rather, it's being overpowered by an outside force, the power of God acting through Jesus. Again, in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this, one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament, seriously, was that it talks so much about dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. The difference is that Christianity thinks that this dark power was created by God and was good when, it was, when he was created and went wrong. Christianity agrees with dualism that this universe is at war, but it does not think that this war, like dualism does, is between independent powers. It thinks it is a civil war, a rebellion, and that we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebel. Enemy-occupied territory, that's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in the great campaign of sabotage. The king has come to bind the strong man who's kept us in oppression and set us free. That is what Jesus is doing. Jesus had to do something for us before he would do something in us. This is why we cannot write him off as simply being a good teacher. It does not work. Could Jesus have shown up and taught us how to break out of the strong man's house? Like, hey guys, I can't deliver you, but I could tell you how to break out. You couldn't do it. Could Jesus have come as a great teacher to overcome all the powers of injustice and disease and sin and death? No. Jesus had to come in and take on injustice, take on death, and take on sin, thereby freeing us. That's what Jesus had to do. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, that strong man's house, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
Colossians 2.13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he'd set aside, nailing it to the cross. He has disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. Jesus has come in and bound the strong man who has held humanity and freed us. He is the stronger one. This is why Jesus isn't just a teacher of acceptance and love. He's more than that. He has come to set us free. This is actually brings up a very, another very important point. And very, another very important implication, which is you originally belong to God. You originally belong to God. That's why you're a captive, a prisoner that needs to be delivered. In the beginning, Genesis, God created us to live with him in unbroken relationship with our creator and with one another. Think of that, unbroken relationship. Imagine never being misunderstood, Imagine never having to lock your doors. Imagine never having to feel alone or lost or worried. It was perfect. With God and with each other, it was paradise. Humanity has ever since been yearning to be restored to this. We have this in us. We just, we know it in us. We want to be restored to this relationship. We all have this sense that this is what we all really want and we can't get there. Why? Genesis chapter 3. The kingdom is lost. We're no longer God's people by nature. We have turned away from God, led away by a cunning serpent, and everything starts to unravel. But then in Genesis 3.15, we have this wonderful, amazing prophecy. God is going down, and he's talking to the serpent, to the woman, to the man, to the earth, and he's proclaiming curses, and then he says this. He turns to the serpent, and he gives a wonderful prophecy. He says, a one born of a woman stronger than you will come and crush your head. Theologians call, label Genesis chapter 3.15 the proto-evangelium, the first announcement of the gospel. The first announcement of the gospel came in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, that God is going to restore everything again. God's promise to deliver us. That's what's going on here in Mark chapter 3. This is what Jesus is saying in the parable, that he is the stronger one. Come to bind the strong man who has held the world captive and under his power, he has come to set us free. And this is why I said Jesus has to do something for humanity before he does something to it. He has to save us and deliver us from the power of evil and forgive us before he can heal us. We're all born messed up. We're all very broken and messed up in this, in this place. And priority number one was for Jesus to save us. And that's next. That's why there's this warning, because they miss it. Look at this warning. Verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Okay, the unforgivable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Many people have been scared by this if you've been in church. Like, okay, have I committed the sin that cannot be forgiven? Am I doomed? What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? In context, the sin of the scribes, the people that accuse Jesus of being demonic, is that in the presence of God's grace in action, 
they have not only rejected it, but ascribed it to the devil. If you're convinced that the work of the Holy Spirit is the work of the devil, there is no going back. It's like holding conspiracy theory. All the evidence you will see will simply confirm your belief. If you think the good in Jesus is actually evil, everything Jesus does just proves your theory. It's a conspiracy theory. Like everything he does, like he just casts out a demon. Yeah, I know, because he's the prince of demons. Well, he he just healed somebody. Yeah, I know, because he's demonic. He has that power. That sickness was a, a demonic thing. Everything he does, it just proves. Well, he's not going to the synagogue anymore. Oh, because he's demonic. Everything he does proves to them that he's demonic. If you're firmly convinced that the doctor who is offering to perform a life-saving operation on you is in fact a murderer and possibly a cannibal, you will never let him put you under and go into surgery. If you're sitting there and you're sitting on the, with, the, with the surgeon, you're like, you're just convinced this guy is a murderer and he's going to eat me. If you're convinced of that, everything he says to you will just convince you of your theory. There's no way in the world you would let him put you under to cut you. Everything in the room, like, what's that scalpel for? Uh, I need to cut you open. I knew it. You're going to eat me. I mean, every single thing. What's that scalpel? I need to cut you. Like, no, I knew you were going to cut me. You're going to eat me. I'm not going to eat you. I just need to get at your heart. I knew. I bet you do, you sick man. Like, everything he says, I need to put you under. I'm going to cut you here, and then I'm going to take out your heart. You're like, told you. You're going to kill me. Everything he says just confirms your conspiracy theory. And once you see a surgeon like that, there's nothing he can do to help you. You've put yourself at odds with him. So what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It's putting yourself at odds with who Jesus is. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to reveal who Jesus is, that he is the stronger one, that he is the mighty one, that he is the savior. And if you reject that, You reject forgiveness, you reject peace, you reject restoration, you reject reconciliation. God will forgive every sin. God will forgive every sin, but not until you realize your need for Jesus and his ability to save you. He will forgive every sin except the sin of until until you realize that you need Jesus and he needs to forgive you. If you have thought of Jesus wrongly, or you've rejected his claims, repent. There's no record in Scripture of anyone asking forgiveness of God and being denied it. Finally, we see an invitation. Now, the sandwich episode concludes, now it cuts back to the family scene where his mother Mary and brothers were outside and they were calling for him. That might have been slightly embarrassing Jesus' family want, to, want him to come out of the house so they can seize him. Literally, they want to bind him because they think he's a lunatic. Verse 33, he says, actually, when he hears this news, he goes, Who are my brothers and who is my mother? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. In this society, in the first century society, and especially in the Jewish faith, family was everything. You never left your hometown. You often never even left your home, even when you were married in this time. You worked the family business, and you, and you contributed to upholding the family name. Family was everything. But here, a new situation is developing with Jesus. Stronger ties than blood are now being forged. 
Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God wants absolute claim on your life. That doing the will of God supersedes any other cultural obligation. Any other claim that culture or society places on your life, doing the will of God supersedes that. In the first century, there was no other cultural claim that was stronger and that society placed more importance on than the family unit. But when you do this, when you don't deem ultimate what your culture and your society deems as ultimate, and you start to do the will of God, you become an outsider. You become weird. When you don't live for money or self-expression or live to build your resume or your portfolio, when you live to do the will of God, you start to look very weird, and you'll probably be, probably be somewhat of an outsider. But look at the story. Who's on the outside and who's on the inside? On the outside of the house are his family who is trying to seize him because they think he's lost his mind. On the inside are the people obeying and listening to Jesus. Jesus calls this, these people his new family, a new people, a new set of relationships that have come into being because of the good news about the kingdom of God. Something new is being forged here. Now, I don't know if you've been failed by your family. I don't know if you know what that feels like being failed by your mom or your dad or your family. Some of you might have even walked away from the faith in Christ or, or rejected the church because that was your dad's faith or your mom's church or because of the damage you went through growing up and you want nothing to do with it. And so you moved to San Francisco. Or maybe it's hard for you to grasp this whole concept of the family of God because you were let down by your family. If you've been hurt by your mom or your dad or your family or your church and you felt forsaken, in the context of the book of Mark, this is what's happening all the time. And so Mark puts this in here because, number one, it happened. And number two, the people that would get this book would hear that Jesus is starting a new family. You're being rejected by your family? Jesus will uphold you. You're being rejected by your family because you believe you're now part of the family of God. And if you've been hurt by your family, by your parents, by your church or whatever, Psalm 27 says, for my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. What's going on here is that Jesus is making a new community. And this new community is actually a family centered around him to the father. And there is no sin. To get into this family, there is no sin God won't forgive to get into this family. But he will forgive no sin until you realize your need, your dire need for Jesus. And that Jesus has come to save you and to bring you into this new family of faith. So this sandwich episode in the middle, what's happening is that Jesus is saying, this is who I really am. I am the strong one. Come to liberate you. Come to set you free come to make you to be a part of a family of God where I will forgive every sin except the sin of not trusting me, of not believing who I really am. Because if you don't believe who he really is, you'll never go under the knife. Unless you believe who he really is, you'll never go under. You'll never go there. But when you do, once you see Jesus who, and who he really is, you dive in willingly. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And God, I pray that, Holy Spirit, that you would show us who Jesus really is. 
we need you to show us, God. This, is, this has been information, even things that we've been reading are information. We need you, Holy Spirit, to apply it to our lives. We need to understand who you are, that we, that we would rightly respond to you. And I pray, God, that you would minister to people individually, that you would do that this morning. People that have been hurt by family or church or circumstances or whatever, or maybe they don't really even know, they've never even been around and they don't even know who you are. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would, you would show us who you are, that you would deliver us from bondage and sin and oppression, and you would set us free. We pray these things in your name and for your glory.